Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello listener, here we are again, huddled together and escaping from the real world with our monthly dose of business technology chat. Inside the walls of the pod with me this time is our usual dynamic duo of Digital Bulletin CEO, Romilly Broad. Hello. And Content Director, James Henderson. Hello. Last pod <laughs> of like the... quiz show, is it? <laughs> Sorry, carry on. <laughs> Last pod of the year, guys. Are you both in reflective mood as the curtains draw on 2019? Yeah. it's We've been around for a year now, us. And I know no one else cares. But for us internally, you know, amongst ourselves, it's quite a, uh, a thing. You know, we we can celebrate a lot of adventures around the world. We've met so many interesting uh, people doing interesting things in their organisations. And um, um, it's good to know that we put that out not just in podcasts obviously but in all sorts of different forms and we can look forward to uh, loads more in the new year giving yourself a big pat on the back james uh no 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 i'm not sure about that um yeah it's it's been a it's been a busy year it's been a, an interesting year um looking forward to a, a little break over christmas and spending some time with the family and, and coming back in in 2020 with the batteries well and truly recharged fantastic well listener we're leaving this year behind with a belter of a show for you Andy Grabner from Dynatrace tells us why AOPS solutions are taking hold of our IT systems and making them far, far better. Plus, we break down our case study on Industrial Colossus Henkel and its digital-first vision for 2020 and beyond. But first, some news. Lots has happened in our world since we last got together. The race to the edge got a bit more interesting this month with Microsoft and AT&T tag-teaming on a 5G service for edge computing only for AWS and Verizon to do exactly the same thing a week later. We've also seen AWS use its flagship Invent Conference to announce partnerships with seemingly every company on the planet, although it didn't pump out enough press releases to hide the news of its practices falling under the watchful eye of the US Congress's antitrust inquiry. Intel is looking to improve its AI capabilities with a billion-dollar acquisition of Habana Labs, a deep-learning startup that was only founded in 2016. That one's not done yet, but keep an eye on it. Elsewhere, Apple are expanding aggressively in India, Jack Ma is funding startups across Asia, and Ericsson is being forced to cough up $1 billion to settle allegations of bribery. Now, you can find all of the best reporting on these stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbullet.in. But next, we're going to explore one headline news item in a bit more detail. They're calling it the biggest leadership change in tech since Steve Jobs stepped down as Apple chief executive in 2011. Heading into the new decade, Alphabet and by proxy Google will no longer be steered full-time by co-founders Sergey Brin and Larry Page. The pair are stepping aside after 21 years, handing over the Alphabet reins to Google CEO Sundar Pichai. In a statement, they said they will, quote, assume the role of proud parents offering advice and love, but not daily nagging. Now, guys, lots has been written about what this means and the motives behind their decision. But first, what, what do you think is the legacy of Bryn and Page? Well, it's, um, I mean, it's enormous, obviously. Um, on one hand, it, I'm not sure calling it a legacy is, that, is right, because it almost implies that they've kind of, I don't know, jettison themselves from the earth and are no longer around or something. But the um, they will still be involved. But obviously, the, the, their creation back in the day uh, in their college dorm room 
transformed the way the world interacts with the internet and indeed it's enabled the internet to go on and do all of the crazy things that it's done um we don't need to go into that the i think what will be interesting though is to see how um alphabet and therefore google and all the other bits and bobs contained within um change and address there are many challenges and so how will they be addressed now that um the the original co-founders have taken their hands off the steering wheel so to speak in terms of an operational control um i think it's going to be fascinating to watch now now they have stepped aside james what, what do you think the public perception of alphabet and google is in comparison to the other big tech companies amazon facebook apple and microsoft how do you think they're perceived in the eyes of the public they probably all get lumped in together to be honest we you know we talk about the the the, the big six or the big nine if you include the chinese companies as well um, and you almost it feels like sometimes they're all guilty by association, you know. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that there are there are question marks over transparency. There, you know, we we you know we've seen a number of sort of anti-competition um, probes into into all these companies. They 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 probably in in all honesty get get lumped in with, with the Amazons and Apples and and, and Microsofts of this world. Um, but what's fair to say is that these two men have certainly um, garnered less publicity than with, Jeff Bezos. Without, without question, we, you know, we live in a in an age of the, the cult of personality, if you like, and we think about um, Jobs beforehand has been the very public face of Apple. Uh, currently, you have people like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos of, of Amazon, of course, who court publicity. You know, they go out there, they are the face of these companies, whereas these guys... Uh, I don't think they've done a public interview, either of them, since 2013. Very few people outside of the world of technology will know who these guys are. You would be able to walk past them in the street and not know. Um, so they, they haven't courted it. And, and, and actually, them them making this move sort of solidifies the move they made four years ago where they took a bit of a backseat and they made Alphabet as this sort of overarching umbrella which takes in Google. So it's sort of, uh, it, it's, it's sort of solidified that mo- that move, really. Rom Jones hinted at it there. Obviously, these companies are under more scrutiny than ever. Um, we've seen some stories after the announcement of Bryn Page's um, stepping aside, where we've seen you know ex-employees and current Google employees maybe um, suggesting that they're stepping away from the challenges that are presenting to these big companies at the moment. Do you think that's a fair criticism? I think it's a criticism. I don't know whether it's fair or not because you know I don't think any of us can judge that. We're not there. Uh, I think the, the the challenges that are facing Google and the other tech giants are numerous and um, significant. So that whether they're regulatory, whether they're accusi- uh, accusations of um, bias, particularly as AI and you know as that kind of develops, um, that that bias is a critical um, issue that needs to be addressed head on. Um, all of that cascades down into um, questions of trust. Can we trust? Google, can we trust Alphabet, um, etc. Um, that is playing itself out on front pages at the moment because Google's employees are, you know, um, courting an awful lot of publicity um, as they attempt to essentially unionize and coordinate their activity to 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 try and influence decisions being made at the top. Um, not not just by Larry Page and Sergey Brin, but by um, all of the that top management. They want Google, at least this is what they're saying publicly, they want Google to stand by its original founding values. Don't be evil, be nice and 
progressive and all that sort of stuff. Um, Alphabet's an enormous 100,000 strong employee multinational company, however, and is uh, and it's got shareholders and these things conflict with each other. They are saying, the employees are saying, well, look, our hope was that the, um, the bright-eyed co-founders, those of wholesome and pure intent, would always be our knights in shining armour and they would make sure that, that we never do become evil and that maybe feels a bit scary that they're not um, going to be there. But of course, they are going to be there. They're still going to be on the board. They're still going to have the controlling shares. Um, nothing really changes apart from the fact they're freeing themselves up to, uh, I don't know, go surfing more and, and generally enjoy themselves more, which is probably what it's really all about. That's a, the interesting point, isn't it, James? The fact that they are retaining voting power on the board. Do you think this announcement of them stepping away maybe was a bit of a PR move? Yes, and, you know, there is also... If you are these guys, and they're both, I think that they're both worth something in excess of fifty billion dollars. That's uh, enough. Yeah, it, it, it is really? enough. And if you are these guys, do you really need to be involved in the day to day anymore? I mean, Google and Alphabet is a money making machine. They can, you know, retain their their shares and their interest in it. Um, and and, from a personal perspective, step, and step away. I mean, why? You know, they've done it for twenty years. They they started off what they what they started off these the you know the search element of Google has had something like an eighty eight percent market share today and for the last twenty years. What's left to achieve for those? What's the challenge? You know, Ron, what do you think the strategic direction will be for Alphabet going forward? Do you think it's going to change given this news? They, I no, I shouldn't think so at all. I mean, what they've um, overseen is the um, the the transition of of Google from being a you know a search company into being a multifaceted octopus of of technologies. They're into AI. They're into healthcare. They're into flying drones about, driving autonomous cars around the place. They're placing bets. In fact, they call them other bets. Um, all over the place, investments of all sorts of different structures um, everywhere you look. Um, that's that's not going to change. I think the only thing that Google employees, that as we were just talking about, might be concerned about, as well as other people who are invested in what um, Alphabet is doing, is that without those guys at the helm, will Google, and sorry, I keep talking about Google, it's not, it's Alphabet. <laughs> will Alphabet become more cautious? Will it change in its in the way that it places its bets? Will it um, stay true to that vision, which I think is by and large true, um, don't be evil, has led to a um, uh, an extremely bold culture, really, which says, do you know what? We're not going to worry too much about whether we just lose all the money that we're placing down on things. We're right on the cutting edge of new technologies. Let's assume that we're going to lose a bunch of money, but sometimes it's going to work. And when we, when it does, it could change humanity for the better. And that's always been what they what their stated objective is. Is that going to change without those guys? I do you know what? I I don't think so. I think it's too deeply rooted in um, uh, in their Google Alphabet's DNA. Yeah, and. I I think that's an interesting point because when I asked earlier about their perception compared to the likes of Facebook and Amazon, personally, I think Google, you know, maybe stay out of the headlines a bit more than those companies do. And maybe that's as a result of the the philosophy that is so embedded in, in Google's DNA. I like the multifaceted octopus. I mean, how many facets does an octopus have? Is it eight? It has, yeah, uh, yeah. an alphabet has more than eight. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, well, certainly. Let me try and qualify that. It's a multifaceted octopus. That yeah. means it's an octopus with eight legs, but yeah. that sticks those legs in all sorts of different places. Mm. It's completely contextual. <laughs> this is definitely the point for us to move on. But just that, guys. Good discussion. Now, after this brief interlude, there will be less Silicon Valley and more silicon manufacturing as we look at all things Henkel. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. Case study time, the part of the show where we pick out and dive deep into one of our long read features. And this month we're looking at the work we did at Digital Bulletin on Henkel. A household name it may not be, but you will almost certainly have used a Henkel product. Sellotape, Persil, Pritz, just some of the brands owned and run by the German manufacturing giant. Now, we took a trip to Amsterdam earlier this year to meet Dirk Holbach, who's the chief supply chain officer of its laundry and home care division. And as a company VP, one of the key people behind Henkel's digital transformation program. Now, James, you were our man on the ground in Amsterdam doing the interviews. Now, this is a major digital program at a corporate giant. What, for you, were the main themes that emerged from this particular story and from your interviews with Dirk and the team? Uh, I'd say the main one was, was scale. It was That was definitely it. It's, it. I think it's fair to say it's probably, in, just in terms of the size, we're probably the biggest company that we're, well, certainly one of the biggest companies that we've worked with. Um, and the, the whole piece really looked at how you go about implementing a successful transformation at that sort of scale. Um, I'd, I'd say that was the main one. And the, the way they did it, unsurprisingly, and I sometimes feel like I repeat myself when I speak about these sort of digital transformation projects. The way they went about it was to partner really intelligent people that, um, within, within the business and marry those up with some really smart and capable partners who were able to introduce the sort of technology ecosystems into Henkel. Um, and that included, you know, large scale cloud companies and that included, you know, all the way from, you know, your big AWS or whoever the cloud provider was all, all the way down to sort of startups. So it's about bringing all those elements together to enact and implement a digital transformation at, you know, at the scale that, that was necessary. That, no. I'd say that was the, that was the, really the main theme for me. I think, um, yeah, that's a really interesting point. We're actually going to hear from um, Dirk Holbach on the, the diverse ecosystem of partners that Henkel has. Um, Rom, a strong message throughout this this piece was Henkel's broad approach to digitization and, and James um, sort of spoke of it there, encompassing technology and people and also sustainability. Does this kind of demonstrate the scale of, of these change programs and shine a bit of light on how much work that needs to be done when you're doing a change program within such a huge corporate giant? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to put some meat on the flesh of that, I mean, they are big. They've got 60,000 employees, I think, primarily in Europe. So they are a major force in, in Europe, um, not just from a brand perspective um, as an employer. And what I think uh, Henk makes Henkel interesting is that they've got a, uh, quite a large number of very senior leaders, not just uh, Dirk, but other people who are tasked at the very top to drive continual transformation. And that's an, you know, that's important. The word continual is that they recognize, look, transformation is never done. We just have to agree to do it. Um, they are looking at all sorts of different things. They're using lots of different interesting approaches. Uh, to achieve all of that, and sustainability is very much at their core. As a as a manufacturer, they are presumably keenly aware that they are, you know, on the wrong side of history in a literal sense in terms of using a lot of plastics, 
pumping a lot of CO2 into the atmosphere, all of that sort of stuff. They know that driving um, huge amounts of efficiency through digital transformation, which is the, you know, that's normally, normally your first objective, will impact directly their sustainability goals in the shorter term but then you know the vision is is longer term to to the um vanishing point as in you know it just doesn't end it's it was fascinating being there actually yeah another key element of it is data as as we hear a lot and data is the backbone of, of henkel's transformation literally with with the digital backbone which is its data repository connecting 33 of its global factories is is this sort of industry 4.0 in action james yeah think? definitely they were they were mega keen weren't they to talk yeah. about that and obviously very proud of what they've done so as you said it, it connects the the all, 33 of their global sites that you know monitors energy consumption it tracks targets utility use all these sort of really critical kinds of info and it's visible to managers from all those bases i think they said something like one and a half thousand regular users is in daily users use it and they you know it tracks everything that they're trying to do um, and any new technologies that they implement at Henkel, which is part of the, the digital transformation, is plugged straight into it. Um, it's absolutely integral to, to their wider continual digital transformation um, program. Absolutely. Yeah, now, so as James said earlier, when it comes to supply chain and technology, partnerships are absolutely critical. And here is Holbach himself outlining Henkel's own take on collaboration. So if you look at our partner landscape, uh, it is quite diverse. Yeah. So you have, uh, I would say, the, the classic players uh, on the IT side, on the equipment side, but also, let's say, a number of uh, new disruptive uh, companies. Then you have universities, so academia, you have consultancy. So it's quite a, also an ecosystem of uh, different partners we are trying to leverage. And here, of course, the challenge is always uh, you cannot work and do things with every, everyone at the same time, so you have to be choiceful. Mm -hmm. Uh, fitting the propositions of the different partners to what we really want to focus on at the moment, um, piloting uh, topics and so forth. Uh, when we look at the partners, of course, we try to yeah, have a good mix between these, let's say, established players who have usually quite some firepower in terms of uh, resources, um, uh, but also, let's say, new kids on the block like uh, a company like Gideon Brothers, uh, also using different technologies and having the potential to uh, disrupt also um, a certain part of the industry. So if that comes or not, we don't know at the moment, but really we try to be, let's say, choiceful in picking, uh, let's say, uh, yeah, partners from, from all these areas in order to not uh, have all eggs also in, in one basket. Now, Rom, let's get your, your views on this. How, how critical to Henkel are the, the diverse ecosystems that, that Dirk Holbach has spoken about there and that James spoke about a bit earlier? Well, I think they've, um, Dirk and others have clearly identified that um, the diversity in terms of their supplier and partner ecosystem is critical to their future, even if it's not now. I mean, there's the Henkel is a big manufacturer of many different things, and they could easily just keep doing that. Um, what they have said, though, is that they need to constantly f um, work on the edges to disrupt themselves with with um, interesting new startups and so on. He mentioned Gideon Brothers there, which we spent some time with, obviously. Um, we'll, we'll speak about Gideon in a second, but sure. that is a hard thing, isn't it, for corporate um, behemoths to approach, isn't it? Managing to in engage with far, far smaller companies. Yeah, hugely. And the way Henkel seems to be doing it is they've got a lot of locations, a lot of sites. They will take uh, 
these other companies who've got maybe interesting um, interesting solutions to apply. I mean, another partner of theirs is Microbiolytics, which does interesting liquid analysis, literally analyzing liquids and digitizing liquids. Um, they'll take that and deploy that into one of their locations. And they'll say, well, let's just disrupt this little corner of our empire here. And if it works, awesome. We can then roll it out quickly. If it doesn't, you've minimized your, your, uh, your costs, but let's do that all the time. And that's the, the really bold and kind of brave thing because that's, you know, that's, that's deliberately choosing to make yourself uncomfortable. And it represents amazing opportunities for small companies who have um, possession of an amazing piece of technology to work with a company like Henkel, James. Yeah, it definitely does. And, you, you know, Rom's right. We spoke to Gideon Brothers and Microbiolytics that day and they were obviously very proud and excited to talk about the, the work they've done. I think credit to, to Henkel actually because it'd be really easy, wouldn't it, if you if you're a company of the size of Henkel to only work with very established companies and um, and, and go down that path. But very clearly uh, from the from the management there, there is a recognition that you know they're not going to work with with a startup on something like their 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 you know their cloud or or their on-prem services. But there, there's definitely a recognition with them when it comes to things like robotics or artificial intelligence that there are some companies out there in, in pretty embryonic stages that are doing some really interesting things have some really interesting technologies and and that they've recognized that there's room for both these companies are able to be more agile and more nimble than than some of the bigger companies out there um, and really focus on what they can deliver to Henkel um, and and they've worked with, with some of them pretty successfully it's, it was it was really impressive actually to see how they, they were able to, to to work with both and it certainly came across from Dirk that that's something they really want to continue they, they recognize the the value of, of the startups that are out there in the technology space yeah Ron the Gideon Brothers partnership specifically it's a really interesting yeah. one isn't it um, industrial or manufacturing robotics essentially isn't it well I mean Gideon Brothers are a, a relatively small company in Croatia headed up by a couple of people uh, who are from America with um, a, an American entrepreneurial sensibility, perhaps, but what they are doing is providing automated, autonomous uh, warehouse logistics solutions. So essentially, it's little platform-style robots that scuttle around the place, um, like Star Wars droids. You know, the little ones that buzz around on the floor. And they they will, uh, but they use a particular kind of AI-driven um, visual. Um, I'm not sure what the right words are, James. You might remember, but. Um, <laughs> Um, but essentially, these these they, they use lenses and effectively eyes to um, to pass the information. They're not on rails of any kind. They'll happily trundle around the place quite independently, um, and therefore offer lots of interesting solutions to companies with lots of warehouses like Henkel. And so they are um, they're growing quite quickly, I think. And we spent a lot of time with them talking about um, the sort of things they get up to. Um, but it's that kind of approach that Henkel is willing to take all the time, which is um, where they're saying that their future is really going to, to be. It's saying, well, this all feels a bit risky. This all feels a bit embryonic and new. Um, let's just throw it in there anyway. Let's take those risks. Let's be an early adopter. Let's um, find out not just what the gains are, but what the costs are, because the more we do that, the more we'll learn and the better place we'll be to, to advance more quickly over time.
do you think that's the most sensible way to go about um, main, or making sure you're at the bleeding edge of innovation? Because rather than bringing loads of innovation under one roof, you're actually engaging with different um, different industries, different companies, startups, in, in, and, and bringing that ecosystem together. Do you think through partnerships, innovation is, is um, something that you strive for? Yeah, it's risk and re- reward, right? Yeah. So the risk of trying to develop innovation at the core of your own business, especially if you're a very big business with lots of well-established processes is that you might try and encourage innovation but ultimately it becomes um, bedeviled by the those those old familiar processes it's just the nature of a large organization with lots of bureaucracy so you uh, pay to bring it in from the outside and therefore your and your risks therefore are different if you're bringing in new companies that maybe early stage startups even but at the very least are scaling um, the risks are that you will um, that those companies won't work and they'll fail. That you know, there's always a fairly high level risk that their you know young companies fall over for whatever reasons, and suddenly you you might have placed a load of. And as Dirk mentioned, you know, you don't want all your eggs in one basket, but um, you're putting lots of eggs in different baskets, and some of those baskets, uh, you know, might drop. I'm stretching and octopus eggs. Yeah, you're you're you're. It's different sorts of risks fundamentally. Yeah. So, um, how do you balance all of those things? And I, I think Henkel's approach is is really um, it's really interesting in in how that they've they're building their own digital backbone. They're putting a load of money into their own um, ability to centralise um, the platform on which this innovation occurs, and then they're saying, right, let's put the innovation. In various different places, so yeah. that we're spreading those risks around and maximising the opportunity for those bets to play off. James, just finally to wrap up on this, was was this an interesting project to work on? Because basically being inside a multinational giant like Henkel and and learning about how they go about partnerships and oh, it definitely was. And you know, we were working with the laundry and home care team, yeah. which when you when you look at it from the outset, you think, right, okay, well, I mean, what is this going to be about? But it was very, it was very much a, a digital led story. Uh, with so many, so many different elements to it, um, yeah. It, it, like I, like I said, it really impressed me that the sort of willingness to 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 work with a, a a real broad range of companies, and I thought it was incredibly smart the way that they roll it out, the way they do test cases on certain sites. Maybe it's one or two, and then they look at rolling it out over over a number over a number more. Um, I sort of came away feeling that they've got the balance just about right in terms of how they how they their coverage of 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 partners who they who they work with and you know it was, it was you know, we went a few of us went to Amsterdam to do it it was it I thought it was a re- I thought it was a really good project and I thought it was really well balanced as well. Fantastic. Now we must move on, but if you want to learn more about the Henkel project, the article and exclusive videos are available on digitalbullet.in. It's well worth a look, but now for us, it's time to move on to AI Ops. Power up your day with the Bulletin Brief, the latest news, insights and opinion delivered straight to your inbox. Subscribe now at digitalbullet.in. AI Ops, a buzzword we've all heard, I'm sure, and certainly a tech segment on the rise. The AI Ops platform market is expected to be worth $15.5 billion by 2025, which is a compound growth rate of nearly 35%. Relating specifically to the use of cognitive technologies to support and improve IT functions within businesses, efficient AI Ops strategies are becoming increasingly critical as IT and technology come to the fore within enterprises. 
I spoke to Dynatrace's Andy Grabner, a respected voice in DevOps and AIOps, to learn more. You won't be able to scale your, your, um, uh, your workforce to actually cope with the additional data. You need support that is crunching through the data and alerting you and making you aware of things that are not normal because no longer is it humanly possible to look at all the data we have now from all these various data sources, from all these various layers of the stack. This is why I believe AIOps in general is very important for enterprises as they are you know, investing more, especially in what we call enterprise cloud technology because there, the complexity increases, with complexity comes more data, with more data comes the need to look at the data and understand the data better, but we simply have no time and the human resources to do it. That's why we need support from the machines. Where do you think we're at on this um, AI ops journey, Andy, and, and especially from a technology perspective, do you think the technology is there right now or do you think the, the, the AI needs to develop more for this to become a, a reality at scale? No, I think I think the technology is there, and especially the compute that we have available and the storage, the storage uh, services that can actually hold a lot of data and the way we analyze data. I think it's there. I think what's what what people need to be very careful with, though, when they're looking into AI solutions, is that these AI solutions are not just analyzing a lot of disconnected data. Rom, AIOps has emerged from organizations having far more complex infrastructures than they used to. Do you want to talk a bit about how IT functions, first of all, have evolved and changed within businesses and become, become more and more critical? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we, we have another series of podcasts called Fragmented Reality, obviously, where we try to punch through these buzzwords. And you would say AIOps is another one. And so from, from my perspective, AIOps is... Um, neatly packaged by companies like Dynatrace that are doing really interesting things um, to provide uh, essentially you know, easy to use platforms um, and tools for people in IT um, to track and monitor and control what's going on in furiously complicated new ways. That actually encapsulates probably how IT, particularly in large enterprises, has evolved over time where you if if you take a step above and you look at the people uh, like the people we were just talking about at Henkel who are looking at digital transformation as a strategic imperative from an operational perspective um, not just in terms of technology but in terms of the people that that ultimately impacts and how they need to change the shape of their organization the same is true for IT in the sense that what you find in IT in large enterprises is lots of little silos dotted around the place and they'll all be using different tools and things to monitor what they're doing and um, the bigger the organization gets then that legacy grows and you end up trying to patch it all together into a holistic kind of um, understanding of what's going on. AI ops um, and folks like Dynatrace are doing something that was kind of systemically inevitable probably as digital transformation initiatives um, were pursued IT particularly with its move to the cloud um, becomes much more sophisticated much more complicated much more dynamic changing all the time mostly um, controlled by software not machines and so 
poor little human beings in the middle of all of that in their tiny little silos dotted around their different offices simply cannot manage that it's just yeah. way too much right so you end up saying let's see what he can do with with machine learning with algorithms um fundamentally to sort and filter and automate as much of that kind of complexity as possible so it's kind of um it's a buzzword as far as i'm concerned as a layman here i should point out i'm not running these things um it's a buzzword that really is a label that's been given to something that was always going to happen and has been evolving actually as along along with other things yeah James, specifically on the point of multi-cloud, we know that companies are em- embracing more and more clouds and that makes their infrastructures yep. more and more complex. Do you agree with Andy when he says that AOPS technologies will grow ever more crucial as, as these environments become more complicated and disparate? I think it has to because it, it, we're in a data-led economy now, right? So you're going to need multi-clouds to, to support all of that and all of that infrastructure. Um, and there's only so much that, that humans themselves can do, as Rom says. So... It feels like the, the the required technology is that is there now to sort of help people, whether it's IT teams or technologists or whoever it may be. Um, and what we do know is that the proliferation of data isn't going to stop. That's only going to accelerate. So it, it's tough to see a scenario where that where that wouldn't be the case. I was thinking about this this morning when we, we were thinking about what we were going to speak about today. And it feels that... That that's what we should be striving to do now is, is sort of combining that the human intelligence but helping them with, with the intelligence of machines or artificial intelligence so yeah the short answer to that question is, is yeah I don't, I don't see how that wouldn't be the case AI ops is known to improve efficiency agility and inform essentially better decision making but Andy Grabber mentioned in the previous clip that it will not work with disconnected data and data is the key thing here now here's Andy explaining why a holistic approach is essential a holistic approach means that AI ops to truly work needs to see all relevant data that powers a digital business. And this is data that comes all the way, first of all, from the developers, whether they are creating logs, traces, or metrics. It comes from the SRE teams that are defining their SLOs, so their objectives, and the AI can then actually understand these objectives and then already use them to alert in case objectives are not met. It's about ops requirements where they can define their SLAs or even better, obviously, the AI understands what is normal and then alerts on abnormal behavior, but obviously operations has a lot of experience in, in SLA management so they can feed the AI with additional data and then, op- and then business. Business knows which features are coming and what they're expecting from these features so they can also tell or teach the AI I want you to tell me about this new feature, when it gets released, how many people are using it, what's the positive impact to our business, whether it is a revenue impact, positive or negative, whether it's user engagement, whatever your business metrics are. Now, guys, this is another classic example of data quality or the hi- highlighting how data quality is vital for good um, artificial intelligence. Do you think that message is getting across to companies who want to deploy AI within their infrastructures i'm throwing this one out to the floor uh, <laughs> you go yeah I, I, yeah i think it well let's take it just from our point of view right everyone everyone that we've spoken to in the last year seems to understand this that ai um is not this platform that can just go out and do things on its own it's not uh, it, it's not going to be able to do that it, it it completely depends and relies on the quality and the 
quantity of the data that that it has it can't work in isolation um and i think yeah that that does seem to be landing uh, for companies certainly the, the ones that we've spoken to and it's companies that don't realize that that and just go out and and try and deploy an ai solution within their enterprise they'll they'll learn pretty quickly it will be an expensive mistake that they make so yeah i think one one way one way or the other from my point of view certainly it, it, that it seems to be that that message does seem to be landing. Yeah, I think from my perspective, deploying AI isn't really the challenge. It's making sure the data is aligned to feed the artificial intelligence and make sure that it's effective and delivers ultimately a value to the business. I think Andy Grabner touched on that there. Rom, is that yeah. the challenge that you see as well? Yeah, I mean, the data is is everything. AI is just a, something that you put on top of it when you're trying to use it. Um, that's actually all, as far as I can see it from, from my perspective, figuring out how to um, homogenize and make data useful is obviously the first and most difficult step and probably always is a continuingly difficult thing to do. Um, cleansing and making data useful um, is, is really hard. And what most enterprises are now finding as well is that, that the amount of potentially useful data is growing exponentially. And because, it's coming from different places as well. Yeah, horribly diverse number of places especially as um, things like IOT start to be embraced um, in all sorts of ways whether you're making you know whether that's on the consumer end whether it's on the shop floor whether it's in the supply chain and logistics you know this huge broiling mass of data is um, something that everyone's trying to figure out how to manage and manipulate productively and profitably um, and it's hard ultimately you need platforms such as those provided by Dynatrace, to to help keep a handle on that and to stop IT teams um, becoming enormously dense and complicated organisations just you know on their own. Um, and then ultimately, you've got um, you know how sophisticated are the algorithms that you're able to apply to that data? Once you've cleansed it, how are they going to help you to automate? Um, some basic routine decision making, and then on top of that, how do you start to apply AI so that you're, you know, there's a, uh, a greater amount of um, autonomous decision making, if you like, on top of that as well? Because only once you've got to that point can you then show that up to to IT humans um, who uh, you really want to be doing um, creative thinking and strategic thinking. Um, you know, how far away are we from from that kind of um, utopia, I don't know. I mean, Dynatrace don't, don't will will say that they're already there, but you know, <laughs> the, um, it's 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 a fascinating area uh, and and one that I'm sure will become more and more competitive. What one thing's for sure is that working in IT has become a lot sexier, hasn't it? Mm. James, what's your view on that? Obviously, the the, the classic perception of an IT it's person, unbelievable, right? isn't it? When you consider what the perception of IT workers once was. <laughs> And but now it's now being supported by well, yeah not that long ago and now the CIO or the CTO is absolutely integral to the C suite. I mean more and more CIOs and CTOs are going to become CEOs. There's no doubt about it because companies almost are their data. They are their information. They are their technology. Every company is now a technology company or a data company, and that just was not the case even 10, 15 years ago, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the 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 swing from this old idea of you know the back office sat there doing some pretty nerdy stuff and what it's actually become you know with the sort of datafication and and information um revolution that we've having 
that we've had that's pretty extraordinary actually yeah and even even not just for the CIOs before the guys sitting in the back office having the opportunity to yeah. work with AI ops technologies and more diverse ecosystems and infrastructures must be a pretty exciting thing do you fancy a job in IT Ron? I, I think I'm as close as I'll ever get to being having a job in IT which is basically to marvel at it from afar and try to pass it into a language um, that that people who aren't in IT might understand I mean, it, that's fundamentally what we exist to do is to is to try and summarize and drive insights into into all of this stuff so that people who need to know what's going on know so that they can make the right decisions, they can hire the right people, they can start to understand what the first step towards embracing all of this is. And so, you know, we're learning at the same time. Um, I'm nowhere near clever enough to actually do it, though. I think you speak for us all on that point. <laughs> we'll carry on pontificating about the major issues of the day, definitely. <laughs> so for today and for this year, indeed, folks, we should draw to a close there, but not before some plugs. Issue 12 of the Digital Bulletin magazine will be out before Christmas, and on the podcast front, we have a back catalogue of buzzword-busting fragmented reality episodes, including interviews with the top people from the likes of Rackspace, VMware, and Cognizant. You can get in touch too, if you like. Be kind. Podcast at digitalbullet.in. Thank you very much, Rom and James. And to you too, listener. Happy New Year, and we will meet again in the next decade. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast, brought to you by Bulletin Media. Listen and subscribe to our range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. Plug into digitalbullets.in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.